Welcome to the Bad Blue Podcast, everybody. I've got an absolutely legend on today in Steve Riff. He's had he's a man of many talents. Um, I just wish like the welcome of the podcast, Steve. Um, how how's things? Yeah, great, great to be on, mate. Thanks for thanks for inviting us on, and uh, good luck with this podcast. It's really good. Ah, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Um, heading back, uh, how did you first start getting into the uh, criminology? Um, it was weird, really. Um, I wasn't a great scholar at school. I actually started off um, at the Drive Primary School of all places in Felon, where I lived. Um, it wasn't great. Uh, it, it was before Ofsted and. There was no regulation on how well schools were performing and about two years into my junior school education my parents realized that i couldn't read i couldn't write i wasn't at the required standard so i took us out of the drive primary school all i'd really learned to do was how to slide down the bank on a carrier bag and and how to have a fight with people and um, you know that wasn't really what my mum and dad wanted us to, to learn at school so they moved us into private education um it was a little bit too late i was always I was always going to be struggling a little bit um, because of the bad start I had. And put us into private education, it helped us in a lot of ways, um, but it, it didn't help us enough. And as I came towards the GCSE year, I was the first year to do GCSEs. I'd um, essentially, you know, I, I was at a point where I wasn't going to pass any exams. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was out on the Keyside Market in uh, Newcastle on a Sunday morning. And uh, I saw this book staring out at us. It was um, a photograph of the, the Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie, on the, on the front cover of Professional Violence by John Pearson. And essentially, the, uh, the the image itself just, you know, it stared out. So I, I bought the book. It was 30 pence. And um, I basically read that book within about two days. And that was it. That was where my interest in the Cray twins and crime started. And because I was underperforming at school, the English teacher at the time, Peter Yates, he, um, he realised that this book had had a big influence on us and he said to us, look, he said, you know, if you want to use that as part of your uh, GCSE curriculum, then, you know, by all means do it. I, had, I still had to study the, the books that I was, that, you know, that were on yeah. the curriculum, such as, you know, Macbeth by Shakespeare and um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, The Crucible by Arthur Miller. But I also got the opportunity to study, you know, the career, the profession of violence. And ultimately, I passed my exam. I passed my exam. I passed the English language with a B and English literature with a C. And it was a great, great opportunity for, for me to actually get grades and, and, and pass pass the exam. So that's where the interest came came in. Yeah. What, what gripped you about the book? It was, to be honest, not the violence and the murder. Um, it was the image of the Cray twins that I was seduced by. It yeah. was the the photographs of them with celebrities, you know, with with the likes of Joe Louis, the heavy, you know, former heavyweight champion of the world, yeah. Sidney Liston. Um, it filmed premieres with Barbara Windsor and George Raft. Um, you know, Reg and Ron were always very smartly dressed. I had, you know, uh, Savile Row um, suits on, and they were, they, you know, they were, they were tailored suits for them. The, the white shirts were embroidered with RK on, and and you know they had they had everything. They had the trappings of wealth. Uh, Reggie had a gorgeous woman on his arm, and you know they were involved in bars and nightclubs and glitz and glamour. And it was the showbiz of the whole, you know, the whole Cray story, which I fell in love with. And I thought, you know, that's what I aspire to be. I would love to be in that situation where I was meeting celebrities, yeah. and, you know, of the day, and I'd love that opportunity to be able to go and afford myself a nice suit like that. And Obviously, you know, my ambition as well was to have, you know, meet, meet the woman in my dreams and, and, and have kids and a family. And, you know, basically, you know, your standard your, your standard games and ambitions as a child are what they should be. You know, that you, you want to do better, you know, want to do better than, 
people think you can do and, and you know aim for the top in your field so that was it that's what seduced us and you know it was probably you know even people might say it was naive you know maybe he's you know ignoring the murders and and the the protection rackets etc but yeah that was what i took out of the book and and ultimately um you know it, it's something which is you know guided as well in my life you know as, as, as we'll come to after you know after the visit yeah um when when you wrote that letter did you ever expect the letter back no, definitely not. I mean, I wrote to Reggie Cray first, um, and and you get a lot of these people over the years who've written to villains and criminals, and they do it with a premeditation. They do it, they do it with a plan. Yeah. And maybe do it because they think they're going to make money, or they can they can get the letter and sell it. That's what happens these days. You uh-huh. know, people like you know Charles Salvador's been a huge victim of that. You know, yeah, being, definitely. You used and abused by a lot of people over the years, and. Um, but no, for me, I was, you know, I just left school. I was 16, going around 17. I was, I was become, you know, I, I took my first steps in uh, drama school to, to be an actor. And, you know, from my perspective, I, uh, I, I just wrote to them to say thanks for the, the life story because that was the story that, that grabbed me and got me to pay attention to English and got me to study. And that got me some qualifications, which I would never have got had, uh, you know, had I not read the book. So, you know, yeah. I basically said, to the, you know, to Reg and to Rod, you know, your life might have, your life, your life might have led you to a life sentence, and you might not have had a very good life, you know, after after what you did. But from my perspective, it's helped me massively. So I just wanted to share that with them. And to get the letters back was was yeah, it was surreal. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I'd, I'd read I'd read a book, and I had a reply back from the people the book was about. And you know, they were short, they were polite. You know, thanks for the kind words. We can't keep up with correspondence. Good luck in your life. You know, yeah. very similar letters. Bearing in mind that they were both a completely different places. Reg was in Gartree Prison and Ron was in Broadmoor Hospital. Oh, huge contrast. Yeah, amazing to get those two letters back. And I never, I never thought anything more of it. And it wasn't until six months later that um, I spoke to uh, my mum. She had a, a magazine called Take a Break. And there was an article uh, in, mm. in the magazine. It was a double page spread on a young lad in Doncaster who was 13 years old called Brad Lane. And him and his mother had struck up a, a correspondence with Reg, done exactly the same as me, written to him. But, yeah. you know, they seem to have a more premeditated, you know, premeditated plan. Mm. And, you know, essentially mm. what, what, what the cuss of the article was, was that, you know, Reggie Cray wanted to adopt Brad, you know. He, he, you know, so you, had, you basically had the article, my dad is Reggie Cray, you had uh-huh. Brad dressed in a suit, you had behind him was like a shrine to Reg and Ron and there was photographs and there was just all these different artifacts and I was like wow you oh, know, yeah. it, it rekindled it the interest again so so I wrote to uh, to Brad and Kim and Doncaster and you know I, I didn't get a reply for a couple of months and then suddenly out of the blue they wrote back and you know they said look you know uh, thanks for your letter my dad's fine and you know, if you're ever down in Doncaster, come and see us. And uh, as it happened, I had friends in Scunthorpe, not too far from Doncaster, who I was visiting later that year. So that's what I did. I went down, visited them. And uh, on this particular day, it was it was amazing. I got a chance to see the, the Cray's wedding photographs. I got a chance to see, you know, various various things that they had. I had Francis's engagement ring and wow. stuff like that. Reggie. Regid patrols with a lot of stuff to them, you know, and, and entrusted them to look after it. And... Um, you know, it was it was just getting close to me leaving, and then the phone rang, um, and it was like one of the old-fashioned phones, you know, <laughs> ring, ring, um, and, and you know they went off to, to pick the phone up, and uh, you know it was Reg. He was on the phone, so Brad spoke to him, and then Kim spoke to him, and then she went Steve, and she handed us the phone, and for the first time I spoke to Reggie Cray. Wow, and when when you got asked to go down and visit them, how, how did you feel? What? what how were you feeling on that on the first journey down there? 
from that first, you know, I mean, that phone call was, was you know, it was a polite phone call. He went, yeah. you, Steve, from Newcastle. And, you know, we had a little bit of a chat. We had a bit of ban- banter about football. He was a he was an Arsenal fan. I'm a Newcastle fan. And, you know, we, we, talk, we talked a little bit. He asked us what I did. At the time, I was running the post office. You know, yeah. Grandma and Grandad had in Wardley in Gateshead. And, um, you know, he made a joke about the post office, as, as every good criminal would. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, uh, we just got on. And he just says, you'll have to come and see me. So a couple of weeks later I was on the video to go and see him at Godfrey Prison with Brad and Kim and uh, yeah I mean it was a long journey it was an eight and a half hour journey from Newcastle um, down because I had to get down to Doncaster and then you know then we jumped yeah. in the car with Brad and Kim from Doncaster uh, wherever he lived across to Mark Harbour Leicestershire uh, to Godfrey and um, yeah I was I was I wouldn't say I was nervous um, oh. at all. My mum, my mum was all for me going to visit Reg. My dad was completely against it, um, right. and you know, but you know, my dad knew that if he tried to stop us, I would, you know, I would just want to do it all the more. I was always that that kind of person, that kind of character. Yeah. And um, you know, I went down with say with one parent's blessing, but yeah, I wasn't nervous. Um, I was more nervous when I got to the prison because I'd never been to one before, and it was the it was the the foreboding sight of the you know the the, the high fences and you know yeah, the concrete, very and then and then and then obviously you know as you get into Gartry, it's um it's it was category A, so you know the the, the gates and, and and everything that you went through were were, were were triple locked, and you know then there was the big you know the big steel doors, security doors leading into the actual prison itself, you know which yeah. were which were probably about two and a half foot thick. Um, just amazing, amazing. To, to, you know, I can still recall going through them doors. But then, as we went on to the visit, to actually walk through into the visiting area it was like a big canteen. And I'm sure some of the people listening will have been to prison either as a visitor or as um, you know, as, as an inmate. But you know, you, you walk in, it was a huge canteen area. There was just loads of noise, loads of kids running around. Um, and we we headed towards the centre of the room, which is where Reg preferred to sit. Uh-huh. His table was his table was there. Um, you know, there was four four chairs around the uh, around the table, and then on the far right hand side there was a, a cafeteria section, which uh, is obviously where the visitors go and get the, the refreshments, etc. for for the inmates. And we've been there about five minutes when the door opened at the far end, and uh, Reggie Cray walked in. He walked in at the far end. He was at the time uh, fifty seven. Um, he was. Uh, bench press champion at Gartry. Um, he'd done six reps with 120k, um, and which which was amazing for somebody of his age. Yeah, he, was, he was a lot a lot smaller than I thought. Very small, um, but stocky with it. Very physically fit. He had a blue and white regulation uh, striped prison shirt on. He had a pair of uh, Levi jeans. A uh, pair of nice shoes, and um, his shirt was unbuttoned down to his navel, and he had a big gold cross on. You know, because Reg had found God whilst uh, whilst inside after a suicide attempt in the eighties, um, and that was it. We he greeted Brad and Kim, and then greeted me, and says, "You must be Steve from Newcastle." And that was it. We uh, we sat. The visit flew over. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, we, you know, we we talked about lots of things. He, you know, he's paying a lot of attention to Brad, like a, like a father would do. Um, and you know, we we chatted about various things, and then we got around to things with me. Just you know, what, you know, what did I do? Obviously, he knew I was at the post office. Did I have any family? You know, and and um, you know, keep in touch. You know, that's yeah. what he said. And he said, um, and I said, well, actually, Reg, I said, I've, you know, I said, I've got a, pro- a business proposition for you. I said, I've got. I've got T-shirts, um, a T-shirt business on the side in Newcastle. I'm putting, you know, famous people on T-shirts. I'm wondering whether I could put an image of you and Ron on the T-shirt. He says, "Well, I love the idea." Yeah, we discussed the finances. He said I would have to put the money in to to, to get the T-shirts made, but we would split the money seventy thirty between him, Ron, and Reg. 
as long as Ron was up for it, you know. Yeah. People think 70-30 in their favour sounds a bit, you know, a bit naughty, but it's it's not, you know. It, 35% each for them and, you know, 30% for me was, was a pretty good deal. Yeah, and, uh, good deal. That was it. So he just said, look, he says, thanks for coming. You need to go and see Ron. So that was it. I sorted out a visit to see Ronnie Cray with Brad and Kim two weeks later at Broadmoor Hospital. And what was meeting Ron like? How, how uh, obviously, contrasting characters from Reggie, but how did yeah. you feel when you were in the, in the presence of Ron? Chalk and cheese, really. I mean, my mum was a nurse, so she was able to give me some advice about what it was going to be like to, to visit a hospital for right. starters. Um, you know, she said it would be calm and pastel colours on the wall, like a yellow or, yellow or a blue, which was right. She said, but, you know, you, you just don't know what kind of situation you're going to walk into. You don't know who else is going to be in there. Ron might yeah. be fine and might, might, be, might be level-headed because of his medication. But, you know, you, you may find that, um, you know, that other people around aren't quite as level-headed. So you just need to be prepared for that. And, you know, that was it. Um, you know, I, I've got to be honest, the, the journey down again was, was was a hard one because, you know, again, it's not, the train wasn't as quick as it is now. And, yeah. you know, it was a, it, it was, it took us about, you know, nine and a half, ten hours to get down to, to, to Broadmoor. I, I made the journey myself as well to, to, to save Brad and Kim waiting on in Doncaster. So they travelled down by car. I got from Newcastle down to like London King's Cross and then King's Cross to Reading and then Redding to Crowthorne in Berkshire. So they picked me up at the station at Crowthorne and uh, they had the slow drive up the winding the winding roads up to Broadmoor. And it's, it's a big old Victorian building. Um, you know, every every inch and nut house really when you when you when you're pulling up to it. Yeah. Um, they were modernising it, just starting to modernise it as I got there, but it was still still this old Victorian building. And and my man was right, it was pastel colours as he walked in and Brad and Kim left 200 John Player specials for, for, for Ron at reception so that he could uh, he'd have something to smoke on, on the visit. Yeah. Um, and we walked in, and, and when we, we walked through, we're actually walking through the wards. So we're walking through Henley Ward, and uh, which, is, which is Ron's ward, and you were, you, you were actually walking past their rooms. Their rooms were closed, but you were actually walking through where they would normally wander. And then you were taken to like a little a little theatre room. Um, right. and basically, it was a room which was laid out with tables and chairs, with a cafeteria in there again. But at the far end of the, the room was a conservatory leading out into Broadway's Gardens. And on the left hand side of the room, there was um, there was a stage with you know big red velvet curtains where the inmates or you know patients used to put on productions. So you know they would do pantomimes in there. They would do you know plays, uh, musicals, you name it. So you know it was quite possible. Yeah. You know, you know, Ron possibly did one of those at, at some point, you know, or was involved in one of those at some point. But yeah, we got in, we sat in the middle of the room as I had done with Reg again, twins, the twins thing, both had yeah. the same kind of feeling of, you know, wanting to be in the centre of the room. And um, that was it. We just waited for him to turn up. But when when Ron turned up, it was it was it was like seeing somebody who was stuck in a time warp. He he walked in. He still had the suit on. Uh, he had a, a blue pinstripe suit. Um, Wow. You know, tailor made. He had the white, white crisp shirt with uh, the RK initials embroidered onto his pocket. He had a lovely silk tie uh, with a gold tie pin. Uh, he had a, a pinky ring on his finger, which was worth about two grand. Wow. Um, and, and he had a he had a pair of Gucci shoes on, which were gleaming, um, and a pair of gold horn rimmed spectacles. His hair was greased back as it probably was in the sixties, and uh, he looked every part a gangster. He walked in, he stopped, surveyed the room and then walked over to the table, greeted us 
and um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, on that on that visit I went down suited and booted. I made the effort. So it was yeah. like a proper proper sit down with Ron Cray, and uh, you know, we sat there, we talked about everything, and I think the first thing that Ron did was he put his hand on my knee, and he, he you know he leaned forward, he went. You don't mind that I'm bisexual, do you, Steve? And I went, no, no. I said, I'm not bisexual, like Ron. I said, we each other own. And he went, good, good. And that was it. And he took his hand off me knee. And he, he never did that again. But it was it was an amazing visit. He, he chatted about everything. He was more interested in, in what I had to do. I mean, when I'd been to see Reg, Reg was talking about business. He, had, he was pulling scraps of paper out with ideas on. And he was throwing them to Kim and, you know, saying we need to do this and need to do that. Whereas Ron was a lot more chilled out and... I think the other thing we run is he was chain smoking, so he right. was chain smoking John Player specials throughout the visit. He would do about fifty tabs in and in, 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 the, in, in the you know in in the visit. And the visits were always two hours, whether they were prison or Broadmoor. But Ron was always always late to arrive, but always wanted to get away early. And I, I, you know, as, as I as I went on more visits to Ron, I used to say, "Why do you always leave early?" He says, "Oh." I like to beat the rush. And I mean, there was never a rush, you know. There was never a rush. He was, he was never going anywhere. But it was just, just one of his little quirks, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. And um, on this, on this visit, um, you know, I, I saw the, the angry side of, uh, of Ronnie Cray as well. Um, you know, it was ten minutes into the visit with him, and uh, this guy walked behind us and knocked me chair and didn't apologise, just settled down behind us. And I turned round. It was a, you know, thick set guy. You know, dark hair, moustache, and yeah. I, I didn't think didn't think much of it. You know, and I turned round, and Ron was going the slag, the slag, the rat. You know, the bar, the bastard, the bastard. You know, and I was going, girl, you know, come, you know, yeah. your first visit kind of thing. You know, <laughs> and he goes, um, I says, who's that? And he goes, it's Peter Sutcliffe. Oh should have apologised for knocking your chair with the Yorkshire River. Crazy. Um, so yeah, unbelievable, really, unbelievable. But uh, the visit was great. We uh, at, at the end of it, he finished off by saying. Uh, you know, Steve. You know, I, I really like you. Would like you to keep in touch. We'll, we'll sort another visit out. And um, when I get out, he says, "I'd love to take you on a cruise." You know, would you would you like that? And I was thinking, a cruise? Oh yeah, that would be great. I fantastic. And you know, again, wet wet behind the ears, a bit naive, not yeah. really knowing what a cruise was in in gay in, in a gay circle. Uh, and um, it was about three days later after my visit. There's a lodge stood at the, the front door, and this brochure came through the door. Was looking forward to our cruise, Steve, on a bit of paper. And, um, it was a brochure for a load of cruises in uh, in, in the Mediterranean. So um, you know, he had a good sense of humour on as well. But yeah, amazing to amazing to read a book and to, to finally meet the two the two characters who were both completely different. Yeah, um, obviously you've built up a you've built up a brilliant rapport with the twins, um, which led you on to become well known as the Geordie Connection. Um, how was it like handling? Doing stuff for the twins whilst they were in jail, and how how did you find it? Was it stressful at times, or did you just think, "Oh Christ, I'm I'm done, I'm finished"? Or how did you manage to just plug away and keep going? I mean, looking back now, it, it was me. It was me really setting down, you know, setting down my way of doing things, you know, yeah. for business. Um, it was it was like a dress rehearsal, the stuff I will be doing to make money moving forward. But again, it was never premeditated. You know, uh-huh. I, I left school wanting to be an actor. And I, you know, I'd gone on to do this drama course, which I eventually walked off because, you know, I did a pantomime. I got ripped off by a local uh, northeast company, and it, right. it put me off. It put me off acting for life. So my dream of being an actor, which is what I always wanted to do from the age of seven, which uh-huh. when I first started, all the way through, was suddenly gone. And I, I ended up working at the post office um, in Wardley as a semi-grandparents' business, which I then 
eventually owned alongside my father, which which was great. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. the stuff with Ron and Reg became a bit of a sideline. You know, the T-shirts became a sideline, and that was like the that was like the beer money, if you like. Yeah. You know, I, was, I was young. I was I was in my teenage years, coming up to the age of twenty one, and you know, I, you know, the, the T-shirts had been a roaring success, and. Yeah, ultimately for me, it just became it became as I say a second revenue in stre- uh, stream and, and and working for them was was a bit surreal. I think the big the big um, the first big problem I had was I was I was starting to distribute the t-shirts not just in the northeast but but further afield and uh, yeah. you know we're getting we're getting people in Liverpool, Manchester and and other main cities all wanting these t-shirts you know and mm-hmm. you know it was before the internet so a lot of yeah. this was done by tele- telephone or letter no, and um, <laughs> you know and, and promote promotions via flyers um and and yeah we're, we're getting orders so anyway london was the obvious obvious next stop and um we we got put in touch with a couple of people who were reluctant to take because they were already doing t-shirts which of course i couldn't understand because yeah. i understood that we were the only people doing these t-shirts and when you know, I basically got to the bottom of it about two or three weeks worth of investigation. We found out the guy who was making the T-shirts um, would be available to speak to us um, at, a, at, a, at, a, at an antique shop in Croydon on a Wednesday afternoon at about three o'clock. So I rang this, I rang this person up um, on on the Wednesday as I've been instructed, yeah. and uh, this crackly old Cockney voice answered the phone. Hello, who's that? And I went, um, it's Steve Braith in Newcastle. I said, um, I've I'm just ringing on behalf of Ronnie and Reggie, you know. I said, I'm doing these T-shirts, and I said, we've been supplying them up and down the country. And uh, I said, yeah, apparently the people in London won't take these T-shirts because there's somebody, you're already doing them. And he went, yeah, yeah. I said, can I ask you what your name is? He goes, I'm Charlie Cray. And that was it. <laughs> well, we, we immediately had an issue because it was Charlie. So we had a big crack. It was a great way to, to finally meet the older brother. Yeah. They hadn't, the twins hadn't really spoken about. But it caused, it caused an issue for me. So I had to go back to Ronnie and Reggie and tell them that... Uh, you know, that their brother was making T-shirts and what did they want us to do? Well, that was it. They didn't speak to Charlie for another 12 months. Um, no. Letters were backwards and forwards. They were calling him Mr. X. They wouldn't even call him Cray. Wow. Um, and it was just bizarre. So, I, I, you know, inadvertently, I'd, I'd caused a, a bit of a family rift. And, you know, Charlie didn't hold it against us. He says, Steve, it's, it's not the first time and I'll not be the last. Don't worry. And, and, and then I had the connection with Charlie and he said, give us a ring next time you're in London. So... I ended up meeting Charlie about six months later. We went down, we had a night out down in Croydon, and um, we got on really well. He was like a wicked uncle. He said, I'll open a few doors for you. And, you know, if I'm wow. up in Newcastle, I'll give you a shout. And uh, that was it. We, we just hit it off famously. And, and then he introduced me to one or two other faces. But then as the, as the relationship was starting to, to, to blossom between us all, um, you know, we obviously, you know, we had the death of Ronnie Cray in 1995. Yeah, that, that I've seen that on YouTube. I, I, the the absolute the amount of people that was there that what that I know Dave Courtney he was in charge of it what a job he done um how much involvement did you have in the funeral um well obviously I'd met Dave Courtney at a at a career party Reg used to organise parties to raise money for charities and I'd met Reg at uh, home at uh, Homerton nightclub. Right. Um, uh, uh, it was called Diamonds. It was in Homerton and Hackney, sorry. Okay. And um, he was he was like one of the guests. Charlie Cray was there. Tony Lambriano was there. And me and Dave hit it off famously. We got on quite well. He was another good contact to have in London for me to, to, to go out if I wanted to socialise down there. Yeah. So, you know, basically when, when Ron died, 
Uh, Dave rang me up and asked me if I would be um, be available to go down and look after uh, Ron's body at English's funeral parlour. Wow. Now I couldn't because I was working. I was by this time I was on the doors in Newcastle as well as working at the post office. Yeah. And um, I said, look, I can't. I said, but I would love to be involved in the funeral. He says, oh, don't worry, I've got a special job for you for that for that particular occasion. And the job I had was to look after Charlie Cray on the day I was Charlie Cray's minder. Um, so I got called into the funeral. Um, I had to attend at half past nine at English's funeral parlour, and that was it. I got walked in um, and walked straight into uh, the, the family waiting room. So I was there with uh, Charlie Cray, Reggie Cray, uh, Dave Courtney, um, and Reg says, "You know, thanks for coming. You come all the way from Newcastle today, Steve." And I went, "Yeah, I have." He says, "Then would you like to go and see your brother?" I went, yeah, 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 I will. So I went in to see Ron, who was obviously lying in state. You know, yeah. the coffin top was still open. So I went in to pay me respects. Uh, I went in with Charlie Cray, uh, and that was it. So for the rest of the day, my, my, you know, my time was spent with Charlie, and uh, you know, it was surreal. I mean, there's some, you know, obviously, you know, well seen images of me at the graveside, yeah. uh, with you know, just behind Charlie and Reg as, as Ron's body's getting lowered into the ground, and. Uh, you know, subsequently after the after the funeral, went to the wake. You know, at the governor's in the East End, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was an amazing amazing night. I met a lot of you know well known people there. Lenny, you know, Lenny McLean. It's the first time that I met Freddie Foreman. Wow. Um, you know, uh, I met you know well you know famous people. Um, you know, Shane Ritchie and uh, you know um, Julian Dix, who was playing for West wow. uh, West Ham at the time. Um, you know, there, there's so many, you know, so many, so many actors there. There are people like Ray Winston and Stephen Burkoff who played, uh, you know, George Cornell in the yeah. Christmas film. So, so there was there were so many people there. It was wow. just amazing show of respect. And I think that was the day that I that was the day that I realised that you know I asked, I needed to start making notes. I'd been involved with the the Cray family over five years by that point, and I thought I'm going to have to start jotting this down because this would make a, a fascinating book for some you know for for the future. You know what what the twins were like behind bars. Yeah. And um, it was when I was going over the Bow flyover as part of the cortege in the car with uh, with Charlie Cray. We you know we saw all these. Um, you know, workmen on the road who basically formed the line and just took the, the hard hats off as Ron's body went past. And I went, "This is crazy! I thought this is surreal. You know, this is this is somebody who's a criminal, who's a gangster, who murdered somebody in cold blood in front of witnesses in an East End pub, and he's getting a funeral. You know, bigger than Winston Churchill. Yeah, it was absolutely it was bizarre. So, so yeah, that was it. That was my first moment where I thought, you know what, I'm going to start writing this down, and, and that's what I did. I started making making the notes, handwritten notes. Um, to you know, to, for the book, which eventually would be called, uh, eventually called the Craze, the Geordie Connection. Yeah, there was a strong sense at the time that um, the Craze had been wrong done, like the t- the amount of time they were incarcerated. Um, so, do you think that had a major effect on the amount of people who was paying their respects to Ronnie? I think it was curiosity on a lot of behalfs. I mean, at that time, right. a lot of people were still alive. Um, you know, your Frankie Frasers and your Charlie Richardsons and, you know, um, you know, your Joe Piles, God bless him. Yeah. You know, there was all of these people who were still alive. And so I think there was the curiosity factor. People just wanted to get a glimpse of these characters. There was the Reg and Charlie factor. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. get a chance to see two crays. Um, you know, whether you saw them passing the car or whether you got it, whether you... You know, you're queued up at St Matthew's Church or English's funeral parlour just yeah. to get a glimpse of them. So I think there was a lot of that. I think there was a lot of respect in the East End. I think a lot of people did want to pay their respects to to, to them. Um, and yeah, I think you know, I think 
I think general public perception was that the, the probably had been given a, a, a harsh sentence. But you know the reason the reason they were given the harsh sentences is because you know they got into the establishment and and they could you know even yeah. even had Reg been released earlier or Ron had been released earlier, they could have embarrassed the establishment by going on Wogan or or the Russell Hardy show, you know, which were the two big chat shows at the time, and and telling people all about the you know the sexual you know perversions that yeah. a lot of these you know politicians had because that was ultimately what the careers did you know they they weren't very good villains they were mm. thieves ponces you know if you and i went out and did an armed robbery tomorrow mm. and you know we lived in the east end in the 1960s the guarantee is that we would have a knock on the door from ron or reg or one of the firm to say we heard you got lucky yesterday what's our percentage we need our cut you know, get yourself down to the, the widows and uh, see Ron tomorrow night, and you know, weigh him in. Yeah. And that was that was what they did. And if you didn't go and do that, then the likelihood was you were going to get you know beaten up or worse, and you know you, you'd probably end up with all your money taken off you. So you know that was what the craze were, and you know they would they would use their various premises to fence stolen gear, um, but they weren't they weren't pavements, you know, robbers. They weren't they weren't the kind of people who would go and carry out a, a you know well executed robbery like you know the likes of Freddie Foreman and yeah. his, his gang did they were as I say they were thieves ponces but what they also did was they, they played the game they got involved with celebrities but they also got involved with politicians and by running casinos they had lords who were coming in running up huge debts and then they had them and they had them over the you know had them over the proverbial table really and and because Ron was sexually you know sexually favored men yeah. um you know he was he started to run sex parties as well he was running sex parties for these high profile customers and these high profile politicians and lords and ultimately he realized that you know he could get away with his profession of violence if he you know mm-hmm. photographed or recorded these people getting the stuff that they wanted done to them and it's been well it's been well reported that Lord Boothby, for example, yeah. um, you know the, the the Tory peer who spoke up on behalf of the twins, and then you know in the House of Commons, and then was and in the House of Lords, and then was embarrassed by the you know by the twins' actions, and was, was all over the front of the newspapers. You know his prefer his sexual preference was boys, but um, he also liked to lie under a table and masturbate while young boys you know defecated on a glass table above him. And that was his sexual perversion, and that's that's the kind of that's the kind of people we're talking about here, and the twins. The twins were using all of these opportunities to, uh, you know, to basically either get money out of them or get pardons or get them to speak in, you know, you know, speak for them in, in you know, in favourable terms if, if, if things hit the fan, you know. So yeah. it was that was the way it was, and they had people on both sides of the house. Tom Dryberg is a well-known Labour MP, and he was in the same boat as Boothby. So you know, it, it, it was a way that they did things. It was a way that they manipulated things to suit themselves, mm-hmm. and that's the reason that they got such heavy sentences. Nothing to do with being top criminals. Nothing to do with you know shooting George Cornell in, in front of witnesses in the blind beggar or stabbing Jack Jack the Hat to death in in, in Everin Road in front of the firm. It was it was simply because you know they'd gone too far with the system and uh, you know that that ultimately gave them two two life sentences. Yeah, purely political. I was astonished when because I when I looked into it more and at, it was a video on YouTube as well. Um, I, I was astonished that it it, it did go that deep. Um, and then I couldn't. Then I kind of understood. Ah, uh, that's why they were never allowed out. Um, yeah, that, listen, I, I don't. But I mean, I've seen some videos which are claiming that they were involved with Savile and they were involved with, um, mm. you know, they're involved with paedophilia. It's it's absolute, 
you know, rubbish that, you know, they certainly mm-hmm. weren't involved with that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. I guarantee I guarantee that. They didn't sleep together, they didn't have sex with each other. You know, again, I've seen that claim. It's it's absolute you know, absolute garbage. And I've seen some horrendous stuff in documentaries and books and and in films where, you know, they claim that Reg beat Francis up and, you know, that he raped her. Again, absolute rubbish, you know, mm-hmm. done for done for other people's merriment or wickedness or, or however you want, you know. And, yeah. and ultimately, um, you know, it, it's it's you know, these people aren't here to answer these questions. They're not here to, to defend themselves and um you know, it's it's just very, you know, it's very misleading stuff that's 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 on the internet these days about them. But the craze weren't paedophiles. Yeah, and that's why um, the likes of you and more recently Jamie. That's why I'm pleased we've got the likes of you because you know the in and out. You very much more than anybody else, in my personal opinion. Um, because that's all the papers are. When they, if a story sells, they'll just keep plugging that same story over and over again, yeah. and they'll never give a proper balanced view. And it's the likes of your books what brings to light everything, where you can get an overall picture of things, not just the buyer yeah. side. So, in I your mean, book- with Ronnie, with, with Ronnie Cray, when I was visiting him, his main his main um, focus was for Reg to be released. He, he more or less accepted and told me that he'd accepted that he would never get out. And to be honest, he didn't want to get out. Um, you know, he, he just said, I'm, I'm, I've got a, I've got a cushy in here. I'm happy. And, you know, he, he had a long-term partner in there, Charlie Smith, and he was, he was happy. Um, as, 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 you know, as happy can be really. So, you know, from his perspective, he didn't want to get out. Um, but he really wanted Reg to, he really wanted Reg to listen to him. He wanted him to, to show some remorse for killing Jack the Hat, even though he didn't, you know, didn't, you know, never ever showed. You know, we never ever showed remorse, but he, he was never prepared to do that, Reg, because in Reg's mind, you know, Jack was going to kill him. And yeah. The reason that he killed him was, you know, it was kill or be killed. You know, kill, kill or be killed. And, and from his perspective, you know, that's that's why that's why he killed Jack the Hat. So, you know, Reg never did that. He never showed remorse, and and, and ultimately that was that was why he never. He never passed the, you know, he never passed his parole. The other thing about Reg, unfortunately, was he, you know, he, you know, I, I believe he was a closeted homosexual. He struggled with his sexuality. It must be awful for anyone to, to be like that, but right. especially someone like him. Yeah. Um. So you know, he, he was he was still attracted to young offenders. You know, there was a lot of like 18, 19, 20 year olds, young influential lads who were coming into right. uh, into jails at the time, and and Reg had a few warnings for. You know, essentially, you know, approaching these young offenders, right. um, and I've, I've seen the paperwork. You know, uh, you know, he, he was told just you know, not, not. You know, he, he would badger them. He'd follow them around like a like a lovesick, like a lovesick pup. You know what I mean? And right. it's it's not good. And he was also addicted to um, he was also addicted to hooch. And um, you know, a lot of his visitors would take him alcohol in, and uh, some people would take him drugs in. So you know, he smoked a lot of cannabis and he drank a lot of scotch whilst he was inside. But the prison officers turned a blind eye for him because they all felt that it was really unfair that he was, you know, that he was still locked up after all those years, you know, because, you know, they'd seen so many sex offenders, murderers, you name it, all go in and out whilst Reg was in. Some of them had gone in, out, and then gone back in again during Reg's sentences, you know. So absolutely, absolutely crazy when you think about that. But, um, yeah, it's because because of who they were. And, and, And Reg, I think Reg accepted, you know, 25 years into his sentence, he just said, I'm, I'm not going to get out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that on more than one occasion to me. Um, 
he met Roberta. He got married for the uh, second time in prison. And Roberta, if she'd come into his life maybe 10 years earlier, I think he would have stood a chance because he listened to Roberta. She was an intellectual. She was very clever. Right. And she, she got a great solicitor called Trevor Lynn on board with Reg's case. And right. I think had he followed the guidelines, done what he was told in prison, been an exemplary prisoner, stopped hassling and following around young offenders, mm-hmm. stopped drinking, um, and just done everything that he needed to, which he would have listened to Roberta. I think he probably would have got out sooner, but unfortunately, you know, he didn't, and the rest is history. You know, he, he you know, he was diagnosed with cancer too late, and uh, he was released. You know, given a, you know, given, given like a, a few days of freedom to, to come and die on the outside of prison. Yeah, um, coming at uh, Reggie's funeral, uh, you had a, you had a point that. On Reggie's, uh, on Ronnie's, sorry, his funeral, that there was still figures of from their era, era still alive. Do you think that's how yeah. Reggie's funeral wasn't as big? Yeah, it, it, it was partly to do with that, but it was also to do with Roberta not wanting it to be a gangland funeral. Right. Um, there was a big fallout between a lot of people. Uh, Roberta didn't like the fact that Freddie Foreman and Jewel Pyle and Johnny Nash and Roy Shaw were, were at the hotel when, when Reg died. Um, there's obviously conflicting stories about that, but you know Fred was there when Reg took his last breath. So there was a lot of fallout over that. And then subsequently she said she didn't want it to be a gangland funeral, whereas Ron's funeral had been all out gangland. And the, the pallbearers were from north, south, east and west of London. Um, you know, she picked you know people from East 17. Um, you know, she picked yeah. Paul Marcus Henry, who was a, you know, uh, a smackhead who shared a cell with Reg in the, you know, in the nineties. Um, she picked she picked people who you know Reg Reg got on with. Yeah. Get us wrong, you know. But you know, for, for the gangland fraternity who wanted to say give Reg a good send off, it, it wasn't the same. And you know, Charlie's funeral wasn't gangland. You know, although gangland people turned up, it was there was a lot of showbiz, a lot of gangland people there. It was it was it was similar to Ron's. Um, but Reg's, you know, it, it was yeah. made quite clear that. People like us just weren't, you know. People, people like Fred and that just weren't in, weren't, weren't wanted or, or, or needed, you know. So, so a lot of the famous faces didn't go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I chose to go, but I didn't go suited and booted, and I, I actually went, I actually went and stood as a member of the public, right. and I walked along with the cortege. There's a, there's a great photo of me, which was an East London advertiser of me, just me walking along the cortege, you know, just, just yeah. my dog coat, my jeans, my trainers, and a pair of pair of sunglasses and. That's it, you know. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it perfectly sums up how I'd gone with Reg because coming into that last year, he was, you know, Roberto was basically running his business. Everything that I'd done and other people had done on the merchandise side had started to go by the wayside. Roberto was running everything herself, and there was no real need to be in touch with Reg. But you know, we still corresponded. We still exchanged one or two letters, and you know, I got the odd phone call um, from him, but. There was no need. Any anything that needed to be done or communicated could go through Roberta, and that's the way she wanted it. So she 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 almost turned turned you know the the rest of the world off to Reg. But yeah. you know, I understood why she was doing it for the right reasons, and you know, ultimately, you know, I still got on very well with Roberta. So you know, Reg knew I was there, and I you know I I got the opportunity. I could have had the opportunity to go and see him at the hotel in Norwich, but. I've got to be perfectly honest. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to remember Regis and you. You know, yeah. uh, I knew I knew that there'd be in severe weight loss. I knew that he would, you know, he'd be having tube, he'd have tubes in his nose, and I just didn't want to see him like that. Um, you know, yeah. it was a long journey down to Norwich, but 
you know, that wasn't the point. It was just, you know, you, you know, I'm, I've been like that with everybody who, who's who's been ill. Yeah. Even Joe Pyle, Joe Pyle uh, Senior, when he, you know, me and Kenny Pander Anderson went down to, to Joe's house uh, the day before he died. We were invited down, and I, you know, Kenny went up to see him, but I just shouted up the stairs. But then, mm. as it happens, really, Joe Joe came out that night. It was Joe Junior's birthday. We went out for a night out, and. Uh, Joe Senior must have his last bit of strength to jump and to, to get in a car and, and come down and oh, be wow. driven down for his son's birthday and then he died a day later. But he, he, he was terrible. I mean, there's a photograph in Freddie Foreman's book of that um, of that, that night, actually, and you can see, like, I think Joe Pyle must be about seven and a half years old. Oh, my and God. Big, big, set, hefty guy, you know. But, yeah, yeah I, I just don't like, I don't like seeing people like that, you know. And, uh, you know, people, you know, everyone's, everyone's different. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, Ron uh, Reg's funeral was was completely different, and and for me, it was the end of the career story, or so I mm-hmm. thought. I, I, you know, I, I knew that I, the good thing was that the first copy of me draft manuscript of the Geordie Connection was finished in 1999, so Charlie got to read it, Reg got to read it. They both give us, uh, they both give us the, the you know, their the approval. Yeah. Both said they thought the book would be, they thought that the book would be really good, um, and it would be well received, and. Uh, a lot of people say, are you, are you disappointed that the, you know, the, you know, the twins didn't get a chance to see it? And I said, well, I am in one way, I says, but in another way, I says, no, because I said, they'd be wanting a cut. And I says, I know how that would have worked, 70% for them and 30% for me. And I says, now I've done five years of work on it. So, uh, you know, I says, I'm, you know, I, I, I can... I can be happy in the sense that Charlie and, and Red both gave it their approval, you know. Yeah. Um, how, how long did it take you to put the book together? It was, uh, it took us essentially... Four years to write to write it out. I hand wrote it and did a lot of memories. And I was doing it in my spare time. I've never oh, written it right. before. Um, it took us. And I'm saying four years to write it up, hand write it, and to type it up. So the first draft was ready then. And then I I approached a guy called Stu Wheatman who done Ian Freeman's book. Um, right. I'd approached him because Ian put a story in which I wasn't very happy about. Um, he put a story in about Charlie Cray's funeral and said that I'd asked him to go down to because I had an ongoing. Um, I had an ongoing Rick with Roy Shaw at the time oh, uh, through no fault through, through no fault of my own. Oh. Um, but I actually invited Graham Borthwick and Ian Freeman and Ray Khan down to this funeral. Um, but what I did was I made my own way to the funeral once we got to London. Right. Um, and I went on my own because I thought if there's going to be trouble at the funeral, I don't want to involve other people. Uh-huh. But for some reason, in Ian's book, he puts a chat, he puts a, a, a paragraph in saying that I'd asked him to go down and fight me battles, which is oh my good. god garbage you know and um you know obviously i had i had to reply and rectify that in my book but i was more annoyed at Stu for putting it in mm-hmm. uh, but anyway we, we i put that behind us and i said look you can help me out by helping me with my book and, and that's it you know once he read me manuscript he said look i really like it i think i'll be able to help you and uh Stu was kind enough to jump on board and, and help make it into a book you know mm-hmm. um so that's what we did and then through one of my contacts uh, martin ellis at Zimagy publishing local Newcastle publisher we went to him with a manuscript he loved it and uh, you know he, he printed it up so um, you know it, it, it did it did really well but I, you know for me it was a book that I wanted to write it, it, I did it I dedicated it to my English teacher Peter Yates who'd obviously given us that opportunity all those years ago to yeah. um, you know to, to you know to essentially you know pass me English exam and you know I invited him to the book launch you know not many people would invite their English teacher to the book launch but no. I invited him <laughs> and a couple of other teachers that I got on well with and uh, and that was it. But yeah, that's how the book came about, and that's how it was published. Uh, how was promoting the book? How did how was the how was that time? Was it was it hard? Was it was it? Did you enjoy it? 
looking back now, I could have got so much more publicity. Uh, but for me, I thought that lay in the hands of the publisher. You know, he's taken yeah. the gamble. He's the one who's laid the money out, and he's the one who's pushed it and done it. So, you know, mm. I didn't really, I wasn't as hands on with that. But at, right. at the time, I got a, I got a young lad from Fallon called Steve Parnell to do the website. At the time, he was doing Dave Courtney and Charles Bronson's websites, and you know, I asked him if he would do mine, and we became good friends. You know, um, yeah. me and Steve. Uh, so he did the Geordie connection. We loaded, you know, photographs, footage, and you know, various things on there. It was a big success. So that that did help massively. Um, and then, you know, just getting in the local press and the local papers, you know, it, it did help as well. You know, the Evening Chronicle were a big help, and Alan Robson on Night Owls and stuff like that. So, you know, I got publicity. Um, you know, there was I think there was there was a couple of local TV networks as well. BBC and ITV did interviews with us, and then. You know, subsequently, I did a, a thing on Inside Out a few years later. So, so you know, the local press were interested. It yeah. was an interesting angle for them because it was, you know, a Geordie lad who was in touch with the craze. And, and I, you know, I, there was a period where I was never out in the papers locally for different things that I was doing, whether it was a queer party or whether I was helping Reg with a book or whatever. And, and we did a big fundraiser at the Leisham Lane in Dunst, uh, in Bencham with uh, with Charlie Cray and Tony Lambriano coming up where, where I raised... It was the very first event I ever did. We raised two and a half grand for a young man wow. called Terry Moran, who um, who had a bonfire accident. He he was having he had pain in his in his hand. He had a shell suit on, and then a spark hit his shell suit, and he went up in flames. And uh, he got eighty percent burns. Um, wow. So I, I I asked Reg if he would help us, you know, by sending us a tape to play at the event, and would Charlie come, etc. And could we do an event in Gateshead? And he said yes. And so yeah, I, I took that upon myself to do it. So I linked up with. Davy Falkus at the Lisham Lane, and we did um, we did 300 tickets at a tenner, and uh, we wow. sold it out. And it, was a, it was a massive success. So you know the the Moran family, because it was before disability benefit or anything like that, managed to buy themselves the car, uh-huh. uh, which was great. So they could get backwards and forwards to the hospital for all the Terry skin graft operations. And uh, so some good came of it straight away. But yeah, again, that was my very first event. You know, I'd, again, not something I was planning on doing for uh, as a career. You know, inadvertently, yeah. that became the, the benchmark for, for moving forward. You know, I had a I had a way of doing it. I knew what to do. You know, get a venue, mm-hmm. get t- you know, get tickets printed, get a poster printed, get an act on, and and sell tickets. So you know, uh, once you've done it once, it's easy to do it again. Is is that how the um, boxing come about? Were you promoting the boxing? Because obviously, I know you used to work with uh, Gary Furby, and I know you used to do some of the unlicensed shows. But is that how some of the professional yeah. events come about? That's how, the bo- that's how the boxing came about because, um, you know, I was going up and down to London on a regular basis and I was going down to Caesars in Streatham to, to see Joe Piles for licensed boxing shows. He put some really big shows on, really, really good shows. Yeah, I've seen some um, of them. So I, so I got Gary Furby um, on one. Me and Gary were pals. You know, I, I, I used to train with Gary um, at the, the same gym as Viv Graham used to train at, at Atlantis and Fallon. Oh. used to go in and do weights and they used to, he really pushed me on. I mean, I was doing something like... Uh, you know, when I first met him, I think I was only doing, um, you know, around about 80k on on the, on the bench press. But you know, uh-huh. he got me he got me up to doing. I think I got me my greatest ever was three three reps at 120. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, huge you know, improvement. Benching, ben, ben, benching the same as benching the same as bloody Reggie Cray. You know what I mean? <laughs> just just not as many reps. And that was all through wow. Gary's training. But we also used to go down to um, we used to go down to Davy Davy Gregory's boxing gym. Uh, it was him and Glenn McCrory ran a boxing gym in Fallon at St Patrick's Church. It's not there now, um, but we used to go down there. So Billy Hardy would train there. Terry French, uh, Glenn McCrory. There was um, 
uh, the O'Hagans, uh, Bernard O'Hagan would get in. Wow. Um, it's just a great, just a great atmosphere. Proper like rocky type of chimps, yeah. high heaven. Bits of masonry falling down every five minutes when the bell was going off, and but it was just it was a, it was an ideal gym. So I was going down doing the circuit training, and, that, and that's where I really got the love for boxing. Mike Tyson was was obviously the main man at the time, and Reg Reg was communicating with them. He was writing letters backwards and forwards to Tyson, and I just wow. got the interest from uh, in boxing from from Ron and from Reg, you know. Wow. And then I went from I went from I went from that to going down to watch the shows, sitting at ringside with Freddie Foreman, Roy Shaw. Wow. You know Charlie Richardson, Dave Courtney, etc. And I just, I just loved it. I loved mm-hmm. the atmosphere. And uh, I thought, God, it'd be great to do this in Newcastle. So then, with Gary Furby, obviously having trained with him, etc. Gary, Gary had um, had a pro career. I think he had five pro fights. Uh, but wow. then, then jacked it in. But obviously, he was still training. Uh-huh. He then had a bit of misfortune. He, he went to prison, and when he got out of prison, um, when I, I visited him, you know, backwards and forward, and then when he got out of prison, um, I, I said, "Look, do you fancy?" You fancy giving the boxing a go again? And he goes, oh, I'd love to. Eh? I said, well, look, what about your license? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was it. I, I sold him the idea. He was up for it. We took a, we took a train full down. We, we 60 of us went down for Gary's Gary's first fight in London. Oh, yeah. and, um, and the rest's history, you know. He uh, he, he boxed on, on about four or five shows down there. He won the governor title, uh, which Roy Shaw presented him with uh, oh. in the ring at Caesars. And uh, we had some great experiences. And then it was a natural progression from there. I got approached by... Um, Big Philip Riley, who's a, a relation of the Sears, the cousin of the Sears, mm-hmm. and he said, "Look, Steve, he says, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about starting the unlicensed boxing up in the northeast. We'll do it. We'll do it up and down the country. We'll do it at, um, you know, we're doing it from Blackpool. We've got a guy in Blackpool who's got the, you know, the insurance and the licenses and, the, and a company. Would you be interested in promoting it in Newcastle?" And I went, "Oh, I says, I've never done like, anything like that in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is." Uh, you know, he says, don't worry, we'd guide you, we'd help you, and, you know, this is what we'd do. And I was going, right, right, okay. I said, well, look, I says, um, if, if that's the case and there's no risk to me, let's do it. So so that was it. I worked with the, the European Boxing Federation, a guy called Spencer, who set that up. Um, and, you know, I, I basically just put a you know put a thing up on social media, which was, which was still fairly new at the time, trying to recruit boxers. Gary Furby went round and did a bit of groundwork and got a few... Got a few local wow. uh, hard cases to see if they fancied <laughs> it, and and that was it. So yeah, I did um, I did my first show at Felon Social Club, uh, which was at the bottom of my street at the time, wow. and uh, and basically it was 400 capacity venue. We actually sold 500 tickets, so it was absolutely chock out of block. Uh, I had John Davison, remember yeah. John? I had oh, him top- definitely. John was to- John was topping the bill, uh, so he had his farewell fight. He fought a guy called Rob Newbigan on the show. Um, and it was absolutely heaving and just just an amazing amazing night. Uh, Gary Furby fought on it. A young lad called Tony Quinn at the time fought on it. Um, Frankie Foster, another former pro, wow. he was on the show. Um, just a cracking cracking day, cracking night, cracking lineup, and everybody loved it. And once your first show goes like that, you know there's no turning back. And yeah. um, I got eight, I got eight years out of that. Eight years out of the unlicensed game. Um, I did 34 shows. Um, we did some absolutely great shows. We had some great names on them. Um, wow. You know, I had Tony Tucker, the actual heavyweight, boxed on one of my shows. Wow. Um, you know, we you know we had uh, we had La- the, the Larry Holmes came as a ringside guest in one of my Crazy. shows. We had you know just some huge massive names. names. So we're coming up. Michael Gomez boxed on a show that wow. we did in Whitley Bay. Um, you know, another another good ex pro. Uh, you know, but we had we had we just had the connections to our guy in Blackpool and. You know, he helped me. I helped him, and um, you know, it was it was it was you know great stuff. And 
I basically stopped doing the online things really because there was too many copycats. There was a lot of people trying to copy what I was doing. Right. A lot of a lot of people who were suddenly thinking, right, well, if I undercut Steve here and undercut Steve there, then we're going to get a situation where, you know, they're not going to want to box for him. And that's mm-hmm. that's why I stopped them, um, you know. But, but I, I was also stopping because, you know, I'd, I'd been approached a couple of times by the likes of Glenn McCrory and Billy Hardy, and they said, look, you know, Steve, you're killing the pro game up here. Why don't you go pro? And you should give it a go. And I was thinking, well, yeah, Sorry for you to say that, but you know there's more money in the unlicensed game. But then yeah. when the unlicensed game started to become a bit of a ball ache, I thought I'm, I'm going to have to get out, you know. So mm-hmm. so that was it. I, that's what I did, and I took the jump, uh, went into the pro game, and uh, at first it was great. I had to go down to Ro- the Roker Hotel uh, mm-hmm. in Sunderland and, and basically give a speech in front of all the other license holders. So there was people like you know Phil Jeffries was there wow. and Mal Gates and. Neil Fannin and you know all the big names uh-huh. in, in, in boxing, uh, Tommy Conroy. And I had to stand there and just give an account of myself, but the boxing board were really great, the area council, and they just said, Steve, we know who you are. We're delighted that you're standing in front of us, um, you know, and mm-hmm. would love to offer you the opportunity to, to become a professional promoter. And that was great. So in the old days, you just used to have a piece of paper. Uh, you used to have to get that stamped. An indemnity form, which 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 basically said that you had enough money in the bank to, uh, you know, that if the show went belly up, that you'd be able to pay for it. Yeah. Um. But but they changed the goalposts, and and basically they wanted ten grand off us. Wow. Well, I didn't have ten grand. I didn't mm-hmm. have ten grand. Um. Yeah, I thought well, I, haven't, I haven't got it. The moment sorry, we can't give you a license. So I put they put the plans on hold for for twelve months. I went back into the unlicensed. Um. And then it was just a, a, a matter-of-fact conversation with a guy from Ashton called Davey Tweddle, who's a building constructor, a, build, a, build, a builder. Um, Davey basically turned around and said there was uh, one night at an event. Um, are, you, are you still thinking about going pro? And I said, I, I am. I says, but I says, I've got to put 10 grand in the boxing board account. I said, I just don't have a Davey, you know. Oh. Uh, and he goes, well, I'll put it in for you. Wow. And I went, wow, really? He goes, I, I'll put it in for you. Um, he says, pay us back, of course. He says, but you know, mm-hmm. we'll work, work it out how you're going to do it. Yeah. So that was it. We shook hands. I told him I'd pay him it back within three years. He says, give us three years, I'll pay you. I says, every time there's an earner on a show, I'll pay you. You know, and I says, um, I says, I won't take anything out of it. So that's what we did. So uh, it, it took us exactly three years. Um, the very last show um, that I paid him back the money was the anniversary of the third year that he paid us the money, and I wow. think I owed him eight hundred and sixty quid. Um, so that. So that show was the first one I actually like made money on it, feel like, yeah. um, where I could go and spend it. But um, but no, it was great. I mean, it was it, it, it actually worked as a bit of a save, a bit of a saving fund for me as well, because it meant that you know the ten grand that was in the box of board account was now mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it was just it was it was almost like put, putting money away with, without you know without having to save, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, it worked out well. But yeah, I jumped into the pro game. Bill Jeffries was a huge help. Um, he, he let us do a show with him early on. My very first show was with him at Gates. Eddie showed us the ropes. But what I realised was you just can't make money at the game. Um, it's so it's, it's so expensive to run a pro show, even with just like a small hall show, like six fights. You're talking, you know, three and a half to four grand minimum. But usually around about five grand wow. putting one of them shows on. And the only way you can do that is obviously by putting fighters on ticket deals for starters. Yeah, not us. But you need to bring sponsorship in. So, so on average, for each of the shows that I've done in the Northeast, I've needed to find roughly two and a half, three grand sponsorship each time. Um, so if you if you go on the box rack and see how many pro shows I've done as a promoter, that tells you how much sponsorship I've had to pull in over that over that period of time. 
Um, you know, and you're, you're probably looking at around about the 35, 40 grand mark um, that, I've, that I've spent on putting boxing shoes on. And, and on many of those shows, I've not made a penny myself. Yeah. Um, I've not made any more, not made any money out of it. So, you know, it's it, it's a game you do for the love of the sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big boxing fan, um, but it's also something you, you know you get your payback when you see you know fighters like you know recently me fighters Alice Corey and Lawrence Osawecki both been yeah. boxing in, in big high profile fights. Alice Corey's a welterweight. You know nobody fancied him to beat uh, the champion Tom Hill. Mm-hmm. He went in and they knocked him out in the fourth round, and then he defended his title. Um, away from home, really, even though it was in Newcastle, um, you know, against Chad yeah. Ellis, MTK's unbeaten welterweight, and he, he knocked him out in the first round. So you get you get your buzz from that, and you know the biggest the biggest buzz night I've had of is in my hometown on the South Shields. Although I never lived there, I was born there. Oh. It was promote was promoting Anthony Nelson. Um, I, I promoted my very first English title fight in South Shields at Temple Park, and Anthony Anthony won that. Um, and then I got Anthony a Commonwealth title shot on Eddie Hearn show at the arena mm-hmm. on the Anthony Joshua undercard, wow. and um, and he, he ended up he ended up headlining the bill because they wanted Anthony on earlier for the TV. So, so Anthony was actually the last fight on the show, oh, um, and he and he won the Commonwealth title beating uh, beating Eddie Hearn's guy. So um, so that was probably the you know those those kind of things. That that's how you get your payback in boxing. It's it's not a financial game, believe you me. Yeah, I was talking to Steve Goodwin uh, about two, three weeks ago, and he was mentioning exactly the same thing you've just mentioned there. Um, with the current situation, how can you? Ha, do you think small hole boxing's done until next year? Yes, there'll be no fights this year. I mean, I've, I literally, I, I literally hit send on the email about two days ago. Um, conversation I had with the area council. Oh. Uh, me and Phil Jeffries won't be doing any shows this year. Um, it's going to be impossible to do, mate. Yeah. Um, complete, completely impossible to do um, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, first and foremost, you, you know, fans won't be able to come in. I don't think mm-hmm. um, as fans can normally come in. Um, so straight away, you know, bang goes your revenue. Um, you know, that would mean that me and Phil Jeffries would have to stage shows with no supporters in. Um, we wouldn't just have to find the money to pay for the show, which as I've already told you is around about the. You know the four grand, five grand mark. Yeah. Would also need to find the money. Would also need the money to pay the opponents. Mm-hmm. Um. So you know, for 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 a for a, a four rounder, um, you're talking on average for a, for an English away fighter, you're talking between eleven fifty and twelve hundred quid. Um. But for a you know, as as we all know, the game the game that we have in in the northeast is trying to find people who fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from up down the UK, we you know, there's not many good journeymen out there, so we end up having to fly people in from from you know from like Russia and, yeah. and Poland, etc. So you're talking for a four rounder for those people usually around about sixteen fifty. Mm. Um, so so it just tells you straight away that if we did even if we just did a, a four fight card, um, let's just say we're lucky and we'll get four English fighters on it. There's another you know there's another what four four thousand oh, there's another five thousand pound we've got to find. So put a small whole show on in Gateshead or Newcastle or Sunderland, um, you know without any supporters it's going to cost us ten grand. And that's just not that's just not not viable. It's not doable. And and that's what and you and you're bearing in mind then that your fighter wouldn't be getting paid. So mm-hmm. you're asking fighters to do eight to ten weeks training, but not actually get any not get any you know not get any money themselves because they get their income from selling the tickets. Because because mm-hmm. the way it works is you know just 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 to keep it simple, a hundred tickets goes to my fighter Alice Corey. Yeah. Um, he has to sell the first fifty tickets have to come to me. Um, so right. let's say that the forty quid a ticket. Fifty tickets at forty quid's two grand. Yeah. So that two grand comes to me. 
Now that two grand then has to pay for his opponent. Now if his opponent sixteen hundred quid, that gives me four hundred quid to go into the house. That's it. Um, the next That's fifty rough. tickets go to Ellis though. The next fifty tickets go to Ellis or whoever it is. Um, so he sells those fifty tickets. He gets two grand for himself, and that's his wages. And out of that wages, he has to pay his trainer. He has to pay his corner man, mm-hmm. and he has to and he has to pay himself. Um, mm-hmm. It's not. It's 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 so difficult at the low level of boxing. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah, a lot of the guys have sponsors. You know what I mean? If you're as proactive as somebody like Alice's or Joe Laws is, uh-huh. um, you know, then then you're going to generate you're going to generate sponsorship and you know, and almost uh, be one of my fighters as well. Who um, you know, he's got he's got a, a great family around him. You know, they generate a lot of sponsorships. They might get a hundred quid here or fifty quid there, yeah. but it all adds up. Pays pays for his food, pays for his training gear, pays for his training, whatever you know. And, and it's just. It's little things and little things like that go go a long way to helping people out. But um, it's it's such a harsh harsh environment the the pro boxing world mate, and um, people just don't appreciate that, you know. And, and I see it. I, you know, I've, I've had jealousy aimed at us over the years, and yeah, you've been bloody loaded, you and you're doing Mayweather and you're doing this and you're doing that. People people forget, you know. There's so many costs to yeah, there is. events. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, Mayweather demands a five figure sum to come and do a talking. Um, you know, and and Steve Wraith has to pay that, and, and uh, you know, Steve Wraith has to pay the higher fee for the city hall, you know, mm-hmm. which isn't cheap. You know what I mean? You're talking a two thousand capacity venue in the heart of the city, which has got so much history. I have to pay for that. Then I have wow. to pay for all the security. Then I have to pay for his flights. Then I have to pay for the hotels for all of the people who are coming. Um, you know, by the time you get to the end of it, you know what I mean? Uh, there's not a massive return. You know, yeah, but there's a comfortable return. But for the man hours that I put in promoting it, organising and then running the event, mm-hmm. you, you just you're not getting you're not getting the kickback. I've done okay on some events, other events I've, I've had a nightmare. I mean I've I've just done my new book, Every Boy's Dream with Jamie, which which comes out on Kindle at the end of May and then hard copy release at the start of July. Predominantly it's about Newcastle United and my relationship with the club. But it's it also covers the boxing and I've I've mentioned in there about um, you know, I've mentioned in there about a lot of these shows that we're doing. One in, one in particular I mentioned is Roberto Duran. And I went into that wow. show with Roberto Duran at the Lancastrian uh, suite. I was five grand down going into the night. Bloody hell. Um, and, if I, and if I hadn't had an auction, an, a good auction, like I did, and I had some big hitters in. I had 120 people in the room for that show, but I had some big hitters in. And I had five I had five big hitters in who were all competing with each other. And I ended up, I ended up in a great, you know, we ended up up. I think we ended up making two grand on the show at the end of the day, which was great. Yeah. But Christ, I went in. I, you know, I went in with the possibility of you know having to put that money in, and it's uh, it's it's you know these people. I know people who come. They appreciate them. I get lots of nice texts and lots of nice lots of nice messages on social media from people, and then asking when the next one is. But nice messages and good wishes don't pay the bills, unfortunately. You know. Yeah, that's the truth. With. We've got a, we've got many talent in boxing wise up in Newcastle. Why 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 do you think that would well? This is just my perspective. The crowds. Do you think we can see nights like Lewis Ritson on a consistent basis? Yeah, I think we will. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got to get back to boxing first. Yeah. Um, the reason that I you know nagged and nagged and nagged that he could only come back to the north and was so that we could get nights like this and. It was nice to be on the top table when Eddie returned, you know, to to the northeast. And obviously Lewis Ritson and rise to rise to prominence has played a big part in it. But you know, Eddie got us on the top table, and uh, I'll never get sick of hearing Eddie turn around and say, you know, why 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 am I back? Why we're in Newcastle? Why we're here? Well, Steve Ritson won't stop badgering us, you know. And that's nice to hear that from Eddie. 
um, from, yeah. from my perspective, you know, it was, you know, that was it was it was a special moment. But yeah, you, you have to have the likes of Lewis has to keep winning. Um, you know, Joe, Joe Laws needs to be tested. Yeah, um, he needs to he needs to he needs to now put his head above the parapet and uh, take a few risks. Definitely, which weight he's comfortable at and take a risk because the kids the kids talented and he's got support. But he's, he's not really fought any of the big names yet, you know. And he's yeah. had some tough, tough customers, but he, he's going to need to go out and do that. But Tommy Ward, um, he's been managed superbly, and he's been financed and funded by the right people. And his rise to fame is, is, is almost gone under the radar. You know what I mean? But you know, Tommy, Tommy's probably the most talented boxer in the northeast. Um, yeah, he, he is. Needs that opportunity, he needs that opportunity to come soon. He wins the world title. Um, you know. I say he wins the world title, then suddenly we're defending world titles in the northeast. Um, so that that you know that's that's the kind of thing you need. But there's there's young fighters up and coming. Look, there's plenty of fighters out there who will never ever reach English title level. Never mind, you know, never never mind world title level. But there are one or two who are coming through. Um, I'm not going to say it just because he's a fighter, but Ellis Corey is well worth watching because you know as, as long as he. Well, I know he's maintained his fitness through lockdown, but you know if he gets the right opportunities and he's in the right place at the right time, he's going to cause upset. Um, you know, for me, that would be the perfect fight for Northeast fight fans. Alice Corey against Joe Laws. It would have everything. Um, and if you know if Joe wants a test, then he should fight Alice. Um, but from my point of view, you know, if you know if, if we get to the stage where you know there's offers on the table for Alice, he'll take them, and, and that's that's what you want from a fighter. He won't dodge anything. I mean, you look at his record. He went away. He got a he got a, a narrow away defeat, and he got a, a, a got a draw on his travels, and, and that's in his first three fights. Um, you know, so from from my perspective, that's what you need. You need a bit more gambling. But all in boxing isn't as important as it used to be. It's um, you know, it's, it's not as important. You know, you need to go out and prove yourself, test yourself, and if you get beat, then you need to learn from it, and you come back, and you and you you address it, and you change it. You know, and if you keep getting beat, then you're obviously not good enough. And that's that's the way that's the way it works. It's a harsh world boxing, but I would rather go out and have five fights. I mean, I'd have five or six fights. He gives it his all, and he finds out he's not good enough, and he walks away. Then I'm have twenty fights. You know, fifteen of which are completely meaningless uh, because he's fighting journeymen and just turning up and making money. And then his last five fights, he's getting knocked all over the park. You know, what, what what's the point? You know what I mean? You can go out and do something else. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in negotiations with April Rose Neville, that didn't work out. Um, you know, she's gone with Phil and, you know, good luck to her. She's a lovely lass, April. But I've got Shannon Bow, uh, my first female fighter, the first female fighter from that area as well, uh, from Darlington. So, and, and she's just a pocket rocket. So I'm looking forward, for, you know, for her to make a debut. But look, it's exciting. It, it doesn't make as money and, it, and, and that's the sad part. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I, I'm busy. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm, I'm acting, I'm writing, I'm promoting other events. Um, you know, I've got one or two of the irons in the fire at the minute as well, potentially. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, will I still be involved in boxing in 12 months' time? I can never answer that question. But like the said in the Godfather, every time I try to get out, it pulls us back in. <laughs> it's a sport I'm addicted to, you know. Yeah. Um, and coming on to your beloved Newcastle, I can't let yeah. you go without getting your thoughts on that. I know it's been silent, but these takeover situations do go silent for a bit, and then you do hear, then it all comes at once. Um, where do you stand on it? Where do you stand on it all? Well, obviously, you know, it was me who introduced Amanda Stavely to, yeah. to, to, to what, the, what the Newcastle um, public were all about, and I was asked to do that job when she came up here. Um, I spent an hour and a half with her, we had lunch together, um, and then I, you know, I deliberately sat away from her in the stands, but unfortunately the newspapers did manage to pick us out with one of their photographers. Um, <laughs> um, it's unfortunate because all the clips you see of Amanda Stavely and I was with me and you can see my dad and my brother sitting directly in front of her, which uh-huh. is where I chose not to sit. Um, right. But yeah, listen, she's a lovely lass. Uh-huh. Um, she, she's, she's, she's from North Yorkshire. Um, and she's got some great connections and I knew when I met her in 2017 that this was the beginning of something special and I knew she wouldn't walk away um, you know after Mike Ashley and, and her had, had parted, parted ways at, at, at uh, the Curry House that time yeah. I knew she would be back I had a feeling that she would be back with, with either other investors or a better offer or whatever but I wasn't sure how it was going to operate or how it was going to work I'm just delighted she has and um, yeah I mean you know you follow me on social media and Steve Rave on Twitter and you know, I've, 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 I've done my best to try and lay people's fears on there over the last uh, over the last six to eight weeks. Yeah. Um, I'm very I'm very confident that the deal will go through. Um, you know, the biggest the biggest thing that you can say about this takeover is that Mike Ashley, in other occasions where there's been supposed takeovers, has come out and, and, and had a pop or had a go at the prospective buyer for being a time waster or for dragging their feet or this isn't going to happen, so I'm not selling the club. There's been none of that this time. Because yeah. the club's been sold, you know they've done the they've done the deal. The deal has been done. The contracts have been signed. The stuff's gone up a company's house. So from our perspective, you know all we're waiting for now is the Premier League checks to go through. The Premier League checks will take it will take time, and the reason they'll take time is because we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. We still haven't gotten a great date on the return of Project Restart, and and that's the reason that this this isn't rushed through. Also, there's been objections. Now, those objections in the grand scheme of things won't affect the Premier League checks. But what they will do is make anybody at the Premier League nervous about coming out and saying, well, the deals, um, you know, the checks are fine. We're, we're granting permission for this to go through straight away. So what they've done is, you know, they've, 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 you know, they've taken their time. Yeah. They've got to be seen to be looking at every single option. You know, whether it's the Kasogi, um, the Widow, mm-hmm. or whether it's behind sports or whatever, yeah. they've got to be seen to be doing the right thing. But ultimately... Um, when your government is selling arms to Saudi Arabia, when your government has got a good trading relationship with Saudi Arabia, when Saudi Arabia are on the verge of, of you know, taking over television rights for football yeah. in the UK, then, you know, that all points to one thing. 
they aren't going to turn around and say Newcastle United can't have Saudi owners. I'm afraid that's just not going to happen. No. So anybody who thinks it's going to collapse, you know, give your head a shake, go and get your cans, and and sit by the sit by Sky Sports News because when it does break, you know, you're, you're going to have a you're going to have a great session, and, and that's the best way to, that's the best way to describe it to anybody. Um, you know, it's doesn't matter what Richard Keyes thinks. No. Doesn't matter what uh, doesn't matter what all of these you know journalists who are good pals with Steve Bruce think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid it's going to happen, and when it happens. We'll have a hell of a party. Like we all said, we'll have, we'll have a hell of a party when Ashley leaves the club, and and, and it's happening. And, and you know, just got to believe it. And sadly, because we're all in lockdown, we're all you know we're all spending more time on the internet and social yeah. media. You know, like the old the old phrase is a watch kettle. A watch kettle never boils. That's the best way. That's the best way to describe this takeover. You know what I mean? Go and find something less boring to do instead, like he used to say on Why Don't You when we were kids. Go and do something less boring instead and you'll find that the time will pass quicker and when the takeover comes, you'll have a big smile on your face. But it's as simple as that, mate. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, honestly, Steve, I, I would honestly really love to appreciate the, the time you've given us. Um, is there anything... Do you want to plug any of your up-and-coming projects? Or uh, do you want to come up... Steve, thank you for the for the opportunity to get to speak to you in depth. It's uh, honestly, it's been a, a pleasure. It's honestly, um, I just want to thank you again, and uh, hopefully, keep in touch and maybe get you on again in the future. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Uh, stay safe through the lockdown, you and all your listeners. Yeah, same with you. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks.